last week we, Joel, talked about, well, we've been talking about creation, the fall, the whole, you know, this whole thing, and now we're getting into a familiar story to everyone, this is Cain and Abel. And last week we talked about the nations and all this crazy stuff that's going to get really crazy when we get into Genesis chapter 6. And so if you didn't get to watch that, you're going to want to go back and look at the last couple of sermons, pretty good stuff. That was Joel and Dan. Uh, before that was me, so maybe not watch that one again. It's okay. All right. Let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 4. And I'm doing verses 1 through 12. So I'm going to read through this. And this is one of those stories that everybody thinks they know the story of Cain and Abel, right? How many people know the story of Cain and Abel? Has anyone never heard of Cain or Abel? Go ahead and raise your hands. Okay, good. So there's something going on in, in the head, some preconceived notions, or maybe you just read it this morning and you have it, you know, all lined up. Um, Daniel, did you do that? No? Okay, just checking. So let's start reading in Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time her brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to him, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you will be on the earth. We'll pray one more time. Father God, I just pray for this passage. I pray for my voice holding out. I pray that we can learn some things from this passage, Father, and you would help us to understand why you put it in here for our learning and our edification. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we have here is we have two sacrifices that Cain and Abel gave to God. And that's kind of the, the central thing that's going on here. Yes, Cain kills his brother, but there's a whole set of things around why he killed his brother, why he thought that was necessary. So we have a long history in the Bible and a long knowledge of what God says to do with sacrifices. Like, how about Leviticus? How many people have read Leviticus recently? See, a few people have read Leviticus. It's very detailed. It's telling you, this is how you do things. This is the order that you do things. The, there are several kinds of sacrifices. There's sacrifices for sin. There's fellowship sacrifices. There's wave offerings. There's all these things. And every one of them has a very specific way that God prescribes that they should be done. But that came way after this, right? This is Cain and Abel. This is the firstborn of Eve, Cain is. 
And you get all the way down to Moses, and God gives us those laws through Moses. However, what about before that? What did God do when he was relating to people about what did he tell them at that point? So let's find out. So like in Leviticus chapter 3, here's an example of what he told us through Moses. And this is pretty graphic stuff. Could you imagine trying to do this stuff today? And it tells us in the Bible in Revelation that halfway through the tribulation that Israel's going to start doing this again. Three and a half years in, they're going to start the temple sacrifices. Leviticus 3, 13 through 17. He shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from it his offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. So the blood was put on the altar, and the fat was all burned up. And that ties into this passage, because it says Cain or Abel brought his sheep with the fat. They point that out. Why would he point that out? Well, maybe Cain and Abel knew something about what God wanted him to do. Genesis 3, 7, and verse 21. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, that's what we just read about Adam and Eve, right? They ate from the tree, they knew good and evil, and so they sewed fig leaves because they were shamed. They were trying to cover their shame. And so that was an unacceptable covering for their sin. It wasn't what God wanted. It didn't work. It didn't do anything. So what did God do? He, in verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed, clothed them. Now, do you think that it was a situation where God had Adam and Eve go stand in another part of the garden and he went over here and did the sacrifice and then showed up with these nicely tanned skins for them to wear? And just said, here you go. I don't think that's what God did. I think God made them watch the whole thing and go through it and know what it cost and why blood had to be shed. And I believe that he taught them because we see later on, these guys know what they're supposed to be doing. Somebody taught them. And in order to be taught, it came from God because this is generation one right now. Well, technically generation two. So just like... God did for us through Jesus later. He provided the perfect offering that took care of all this. Until then, in, the, in Judaism, you just continually had to go sacrifice the animal to cover you for a little bit longer, and a little bit longer, and a little bit longer, and a little bit longer. And Jesus took care of it once for all. Praise be to God for that. So God lays out in Leviticus all these forms and all these things that we can read about and now, let's look at what he did before that. Let's look at Abraham. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was priest of the Most High God. Okay? This guy was not part of Abraham's family. Right? He was someone who came in after Abraham had won this battle over these five kings. 
We've never heard about him before. He shows up. Here's Melchizedek. It says he's a priest, priest of God. He blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and, he blessed, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. So Abram gave him a tithe. But he says he brought out bread and wine, which is reminiscent of what? Communion. Genesis 15, 8 through 10. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? This is also Abram. Now he's Abraham. So he said to him, <coughs> excuse me, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he brought all this to him and to God, and he cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given the land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then, of course, we know about the sacrifice of Isaac, right? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abram rose, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took his two young men with him and Isaac's son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, we know that God provided a ram and didn't have him sacrifice his son, but what does Abraham not say here? Okay, what do I need to do? He doesn't, he doesn't ask God like for instructions because he already knew. He'd already been instructed. He knew what to do. He's like, cut up the wood. Come on, son, you get to carry the wood because dads do that. Now, we have another guy here who has some sort of a relationship with the Lord, and he also knows some of these things. And this is in Numbers chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Balaam. Everybody remember Balaam and the donkey and the angel with the flaming sword? Then Balaam said to Balak. Balak was the king who wanted Balaam to curse Israel for him. So Israel's coming. They're all together, and they're down on this plain, and these guys are up on these cliffs, and Balaam has no relationship to Moses and any of the Israelites in Egypt. They don't know who he is. He doesn't know who they are. Same with this whole Amorite country. They don't, they just see all these people and they're like, uh, we need to curse them. So Balaam said, what's that? Like you do. Like you do. It's like, oh, let's curse these people. I don't, I don't need them around. So he says to Balak, build seven altars. Seven is a holy number, right? We know that seven, there's seven lampstands, there's seven cities, there's all kinds of stuff in the scriptures related to the number seven. Seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height, and God met Balaam. So God had a relationship with Balaam. We see in this story more than once, God talks to Balaam. Even though in Jew Jewish tradition and later in the scripture, Balaam is considered to be a really bad guy. Talk about Balaam's sin and all this stuff. When you read the account in here, I, I don't understand all the why, because it's not as bad except that he continues to try to... He, he kind of does what 
Abraham did with Sodom and Gomorrah, and he kind of argues with God a little bit. God's like, you can't curse these people. They're my people. You should love them, or you should, you should bless them. And so then he comes back and he says, I can't curse them for you because God said no. So then they say, please, we'll give you more money. We'll give you more stuff. Come with us. If you just do this, curse them for us, we'll be super happy. And so then he goes back and asks God, are you sure I can't go with them? You know, it's kind of this thing where he's, he doesn't really want to accept God's will. But what Balaam's sin was, other than that, I'm not, excuse me, I'm not sure. But he says, God met Balaam and said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. So you have seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. You have the sacrifice. You have all the stuff going on. Balaam was clued into something. Where did they get this information? Moses hadn't written it all down for them yet. This is the basis of the law, right? These things that are happening here, it's kind of like when Scripture became canonized, when we had the Bible. All they did was get together and they said, what are all the books that the churches are using right now today? And they wrote that list down. There's the Bible. It wasn't a thing of, let's figure out what we should put in the Bible. It was already decided. So a lot of the things that Moses wrote down, I believe the Israelites already knew. And then God gave them specific details about how to um, evolve that worship. Another part of the law, <clears throat> clean and unclean. Clean animals, unclean animals. You can eat the clean, you don't eat the unclean. Where did we first hear about that? Anybody? Noah. Genesis 7-2. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each of the animals that are unclean, a male and his female. So we have all these hints that the people who had relationships with God already knew something about how to sacrifice things. So we get to the next generation. Cain. His name means metal worker or acquired and brought forth. And that's the, word, that's the way they use it in there. She says, I have acquired a man-child from God. He was a farmer. I would say that he was religious without necessarily being a worshiper. Abel's name means morning mist, which is interesting because a mist and a vapor, and we see that imagery used in the scriptures a few times, it's there and then it's gone. That's Abel. He's here and then he's gone. Except being preserved in the pages of scripture for all time. He's, he's the second born that is listed. There are some people who think that he was a twin to Cain, and there are others that say we don't know how long it was between when she had Cain and Abel. I don't know. However, Luke 11, 49 through 51, this is the words of Christ. So Abel is the first prophet. How many people knew Abel was the first prophet? that he was a prophet at all. Therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of the prophets will, that was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So Jesus says Abel was a prophet, which is interesting. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. 
All right, based on what I just talked about with all the stuff about the form of sacrifice and the knowledge that it seemed likely that these guys had, Cain and Abel <coughs> are both adults, and we, they knew the story of their parents, right? It's not like Adam and Eve hid everything from them. They knew what had happened in the garden. So it's reasonable to me to expect that they knew the rules of what it was to sacrifice for sin. And it's interesting that they both came at the same time to give their gifts. If it was just some random, I'm going to give this gift to the Lord today and you know, gets the first fruit of the field, why is Abel doing it at exactly the same time? And he's bringing a, a lamb and doing the whole thing. They knew that something was going on. They were doing it in a prescribed manner. And it, when it says that Abel brought the fat, that is a big clue because that is what is used. The fat belongs to the Lord. Okay. Cain offers the fruit from the land, right? What is wrong with that? Why was that not accepted? Well, in, later, God tells Moses in Leviticus, verse 10, 23:10, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I will give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So there's an offering of the first fruits from the land right there, right? So why wasn't it accepted? Because that's only half. The next verse, and you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then it talks about the grain offering that you have to give alongside of it. So it wasn't just the fruit of the land. It was also the blood. So Cain kind of did what he wanted to do. And I, it ties back to that unacceptable offering that Adam and Eve created by sowing fig leaves and trying to cover their own shame. Cain's doing the same thing. He's like, I'm just going to bring this. Here you go. It's cool. I mean, later on, he lies straight to God's face. I don't know where he is. Right? So there's, there's a lot of things going on here with him and his, his attitude. So Abel offers a sheep, firstborn with the fat, which I mentioned. So God weighs in, and he says he accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not, not Cain's. <clears throat> That's coffee, in case anyone wants to know. How did they know that their sacrifices were acceptable to God? Because it said Cain, right then, he's very angry, and his countenance fell. Well, what does that mean? He was depressed. So Cain is angry and depressed as soon as he gives a sacrifice. He had immediate feedback that God did not accept his sacrifice. And he also knew that God accepted his brother's sacrifice. How did he know that? Does God do this in the Bible? Does, does people know immediately when they give something? Well, as a matter of fact, he does. Moses, Leviticus chapter 9, verse, 9 through, or verse 23 and 24. Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Gideon, Judges chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. 
the meat he put in a basket, put the broth in a pot, brought them out to him, capital H, it is uh, an angel of the Lord, under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of God put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Manoah, <clears throat> also in Judges, took a young goat with a grain offering, offered it upon the rock to the Lord, and he, God, did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When they saw this, they fell on their faces on the ground. Are you seeing a pattern? God is doing these things. They knew their sacrifices were accepted. Elijah, 1 Kings 18, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal where he's all sarcastic and he's like, is your God on holiday? Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a nap. David, 1 Chronicles 21, 26. David built an altar there to the Lord. He offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Solomon, 2 Chronicles. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So we know that God interacted with people in a way that they knew that their sacrifices were accepted. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, forgiveness of sin. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. But to Cain, God says in Genesis 4, verse 6, so the God, Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will, it not, will you not be accepted? He doesn't say, will your sacrifice not be accepted? He says, will, you will be accepted. Right? He's not talking about the thing he does. He's talking about him. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And this desire is for you, but you should rule over it. In the King James, it uses the male and female tenses in here. So sin is feminine in the Hebrew, but uh, sin lies at the door, and its desire, in the King James it says, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So there's a little bit of personification. It's the same we, we remember in Peter says. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour, right? So we'll talk a little bit about that. But the Lord calls Cain out, and he basically says, you know what to do. Just do that. James 4.17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Right? So God's telling Cain that he has the ability to rule over his sin. He's telling him, it's, it's waiting, waiting for you. But you, just, you, can, you can overcome it. Now, don't, don't, don't go crazy with that. I'm not trying to preach sinless perfection and we can all never sin again. So, but we're going to talk more about that. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Great verse. 
No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. There's a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship right there. God, you're going to get tempted, and we know in James, God doesn't tempt us. We tempt ourselves, and I'm going to bring that verse up in a minute. But God's going to make the way of escape, though. He's going to make sure that it's controlled so that you can bear up under it. So there's this relational aspect, and if you don't have that relationship, you don't have anything to stand on. So we've got to have that relationship. We've got to have that indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, and then we still fail and we still fall. The next verse, he says, you know, Cain's angry and depressed. It says he goes and has a talk with his brother. I don't know quite why the Bible pointed out that Cain has a talk with his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field. I'm not sure how much time that is either. So it could have been they have the sacrifices. He pulls Abel aside and probably isn't a very great conversation. And they go to the field and he kills his brother. Or it could be, since he was angry and depressed, that he stewed on this for a while. He chewed on it for a while. And he had a talk with his brother, and we don't know what they talked about. But then at some point, he just keeps going and going in his own mind, and he's like, all right, I know how to solve this. I'm just going to get rid of him. That's going to fix everything. Cain made up a false narrative about God. He was calling good evil and evil good. What do I mean by that? His actions tell us that he decided that it was Abel's fault that God didn't accept his offering. It's not his fault. That isn't true. He's also saying that if Abel offered nothing, God would have accepted his sacrifice, that it was comparison, right? That's a powerful aspect of sin in our lives is comparing ourselves to other people. Either we're better than they are or we're worse than they are. That does is it takes the focus off of us puts it on other people, and we don't have to deal with it as much. Also, that's not true. There was, he's also saying, there was really nothing wrong with my sacrifice. It should have been accepted. Also not true. So he takes his own shame and guilt over the rejection, he projects it on his brother, and then he eliminates him. So he murders his brother. First murder, second murder. Did not Adam and Eve murder the entire human race when they fell and sinned? In the day you eat of the fruit, you shall die. So Cain's kind of following in their footsteps in some ways. He lies to the Lord to his face. He's like, I don't know where my brother is. He lies to himself. He doesn't take responsibility for any of it. So God curses him from the earth. He can no longer be a farmer because the earth will no longer produce for him. He's going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. He's going to wander around, and Dan's going to talk about the details of that and what that means. But I have a question for you. In, <clears throat> in the Levitical law, you have eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. How many people have ever heard about that? So if you kill someone, what happens? You get killed. 
Why did God not kill Cain? What? Grace. That's right. If you look at the genealogy of Cain that comes later in this passage, all of Cain's children are named for names of God. So if there was this irrevocable break between Cain and God because of this, why would he do that? Why would he name his children after the Most High? I believe he did this to allow Cain to repent. I don't think it's steadfast that says, it doesn't say in the scripture that Cain was damned. It doesn't say that. So we assume that. Everybody assumes Cain's the first murderer. God would never accept him. But it actually doesn't say that. And we have this situation where the penalty for murder is death. God did not kill him. He let him live. And he made sure no one else was going to kill him either. So something to think about. We shouldn't assume. The other thing that we assume is that Abel brought a sheep because he was a shepherd. And Cain brought the first fruits because he was a farmer. I don't believe that. I believe that Abel brought the sacrifice he was supposed to bring, and Cain decided not to do that. But they both knew the right sacrifice. All he would have had to do was go ask his brother, can I, can I buy a sheep from you? He could have given those first fruits to his brother and took the sheep, but he didn't do that. Which says to me, pride. I don't need you. I'm doing it on my own. I'm going to give him what I think is good. Right? I mentioned earlier... <coughs> excuse me, about Abel being a prophet. We don't have any um, prophecies of Abel that we know of, do we? Joel, is there any extra biblical literature that talks about the prophecies of Abel? Okay, yeah, me either. But there is some comparisons to Christ. He's a shepherd. Christ called a good shepherd. He was hated by his brother. Christ was hated by his brother Israelites. He was sacrificed for no sin of his own. Abel was sacrificed for no sin of his own. Jesus was sacrificed for all of our sin, which definitely wasn't his own sin. It says in the New Testament that Abel's blood cries out. Christ's blood cries out too. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. That's what it says in Genesis 4.10. God said, his blood is crying out to me from the ground right now, Cain. Jesus' blood cries out for redemption. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount... <coughs> Sorry. Good job, Sam. <clears throat> you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect. Verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. There's another reference to Abel in the New Testament and his blood being shed, crying out for vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, 
not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Worship team, come on up if you'd like. Sin crouches at the door. Did some external force influence Cain? We don't see any evidence of that. Unlike Eve. We do see his anger. He has unrighteous anger. He's insecure. He's blaming. He feels shame. And these are all things that we struggle with. I know I struggle with these things. I can be insecure. I can feel shame. I can feel pro. <coughs> Eve was tempted and fell, but she was not infected by, with sin when she fell. At that point, she was a perfect, sinless being. So we're kind of at a disadvantage compared to Eve because we aren't sinless. We're born with it. James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Eve and Cain are perfect examples of this. It's a little harder to see the steps with Cain. You have to infer them, but with Eve, I don't think there's a more perfect example of it, of this verse in the Bible. It's she had a desire. It says, she saw that the fruit was good for food and desirous for giving knowledge. That was her desire that she saw. Now, the enemy pointed it out to her, but then she saw this and she had a desire. So what did she do? She let that desire be conceived and she ate the fruit. That sin, which led directly to death. That is the pattern. James gives us the pattern. Eve demonstrated the pattern. In what, the second chapter of Genesis? So for us to go down that same path, we just focus on ourselves. We forget about the freedom we have in Christ that takes away the sin of the world. We forget why sacrifices are needed in the first place. And phrases like the sin of the world, that's a huge phrase, right? It's big, it's kind of nebulous, ephemeral. It doesn't, when you say things like that, you know, it's like all the people in the world, that doesn't really mean anything to you here. But the world's made up of individuals, and we're all in this room right now. 
Because what we need to remember is sin does not exist outside of our hearts. That's where it is. We tempt ourselves with our desires. We give into it. We sin. And Christ died for that, to sacrifice himself so that that sin is forgiven. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, again, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we can't do that without Christ. We can't do that without accountability, with our community. Philippians 2, 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. What's the word of life? Anybody? Jesus? Did I hear Jesus? Right there? The word of life is Christ. John chapter 1, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. He is the creator. The scripture tells us that God created, Jesus created, the Holy Spirit created. They all created. This is the word of life. This is what we have to hold on to. We have to get into the scripture, let it permeate our hearts and our souls, and Obviously, you need to have a relationship with Jesus to be able to do all that. That's how you get the Spirit of God within you. That's what we want to do. You want to hold on to the word of life. If Cain had been holding on to the word of life and doing what he already knew God wanted him to do, he probably would not have killed his brother in that instance. And we know that Jesus, he tells us in Matthew chapter 10, I think, he tells the Pharisees, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. If the miracles that have been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would, be, they would remain till this day. Right? Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed by God's fire in a miraculous judgment. And Jesus says, if I'd have done the miracles I'm doing for you people today, back then, they'd still be around. God said that. He's the only one who could know whether or not that's true because he's God. So I don't, you know, obviously I'm not God, and I don't know if Cain would not have killed his brother, maybe later. I mean, they lived to be many hundreds of years old, but Cain knew what to do, and he just didn't do it. And we know what to do, and we don't often do it. And I'm chief on that, in that line not doing what I need to do. So let us worship together. We can give. We have our boxes. Take communion and just focus on that word of life and Christ. And then I'll come back up with a little bit of response. Sin crouches at the door. It's a lion. First Peter 5.8. That's a personification of sin. It's a metaphor that God uses to try to tell us how dangerous it is. 
But let's not fall into a trap that says something outside of me is making me sin. How many people have ever read those old Frank Ferretti books? This Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness. In those books, you have demons of anxiety and demons of greed and lust sitting on your shoulder, dug into you, whispering things in your ear all the time. Well, that's not actually in the Bible. It's an interesting story, and I was very entertained by them, but that's not how it works. Demons are not whispering in our ears all the time, telling us to sin. Sometimes we're tempted by things external, and the world will tempt us a lot with things that are external to us. When you're walking through the store and you see a magazine that has somebody provocative on the front of it and it catches your eye, that's that decision point. Am I going to ask Jesus to help me or am I going to let my desire take me in a wrong direction? So this week and in the future as we're going through, try to be aware of those times when you feel your desires waking up being inflamed think about that and go wait a minute what's going on here and then that's when you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and you say Lord give me the strength to overcome this like you said you would do for me in 1 Corinthians this is why we need our brothers and sisters in our community this is why Jesus created and established the church in the way he has established it why he tells us in Philippians that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. That accountability that's in there. Your brothers and your sisters are supposed to be in your life and you're supposed to be in their life so that when we see each other going in the wrong direction by the Spirit of God, we can help each other to go back in the right direction. Don't forget how important your church is. Don't forget how important this body is and that Separating yourself off from the body doesn't ever do anybody any good. You're not able to exercise your gifts. You're not able to have other people exercise their gifts on your behalf because you're being alone and isolated, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. What'd they do? They hid from God when he was walking. We don't want to be like them. Jesus paid the price so we don't have to be. So... I'm here, here <coughs> to pray. Dan's over there. Joel's back there. Johnny's over here. And there's various other people that would be happy to pray with you if you'd like to pray. Just pray that you would just enjoy this worship time. The Spirit of God would flow through all of us. And we would glorify and honor Him. Let's worship.